Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and is affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and we are back after a week off for the U.S. holiday. And this week, we discuss how difficult it is for companies like Uber and Lyft to govern their employees and users when they claim they don't have employees or can't be held responsible for their users. And then we have two hot takes. One on the announcement by Google founders that they will be stepping down, and the other on a report which rates the world's 35 biggest insurers on their actions on fossil fuels that described coal as being uninsurable. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. All right, so. How do companies that want to claim the bare minimum of responsibility for the people who make them money ensure bad things don't happen because of those people or ensure bad things don't happen to those people? It is a question for a coming decade as the gig economy continues to grow because the gig economy uses what we call at MSCI ESG Research a precarious work arrangement or temporary, part-time, contracted out, or contingent work arrangements. Basically one where you have all the flexibility in the world, but none of the job security or company backing to take advantage of said flexibility. Andrew Young and Megan Eastman, who unfortunately couldn't join me today, actually wrote a piece that is available on our website called Human Capital Risks in a Changing World, and in it they describe the problem these type of employment arrangements could cause. They write, When used extensively, these arrangements may present longer-term risks to companies in ways that may interact with both talent scarcity and labor intensity. More specifically, a workforce with no reason for loyalty, few professional development opportunities, and little prospect of advancement may be both less productive and less innovative, leading to workers associated with negative employee attributes. And guess what? Those attributes can at times be dangerous. Take the 20 women that have come forward alleging they were raped or sexually assaulted while using Lyft, the ride-sharing app. The suit filed with the Superior Court of the State of California claims that while Lyft controls the fees its drivers charge, how drivers accept money, how many rides drivers must accept, for example, Lyft has not done enough to ensure the safety of its riders. This broad, precarious work arrangements are rippling through our economy, and I'm lucky to be joined by Bentley Kaplan today, who covers Uber and Lyft for MSCI ESG Research, and he just wrote a paper on the road and rail industry that looks at the ESG risks associated with companies like Uber and Lyft. So Bentley, thanks for joining me. I think first we should establish the difference between a traditional taxi company and a company like Uber and Lyft, just to set the stage. Yeah, sure, sure. So if if you look at a traditional um, sort of road company, specifically something like uh, you know a, a taxi operator, if you think of like the yellow cab company, um, you know or the, the black cabs in London, the, the 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 way the business is set up is you know very much driver centric. Like they I think have pretty strong unions um, and negotiate working hours and um, you know and fees and that kind of thing. And there's, I think there's also a, you know a very um, strong culture around that, you know, that that driver, particularly in London. Like, if you're a black cab driver, it's because you know the roads, and there's, a, you know, uh, you've you've been working a long time, um, and it's it's you know it's labor intensive, and not only for labor but for management as well. And if you look at what Uber and Lyft are doing, they've kind of 
taken that model and try to try to flip it on its head to say we don't want to deal with these labor issues all we want to do is provide a platform to connect drivers with riders um but but in but they in some sense couldn't actually escape that risk like the the fact that they have these contractors out there with an uber or lyft app in some ways makes them makes the companies liable for what happens on those rides and because they've they've looked for um, you know, very competitive pricing. They need scale to be profitable. So now they've got these massive companies. Um, you know, Uber's got something like three million, three million drivers. I think by their disclosures. Um, and if you if you imagine them as employees and not as contractors, Uber's all of a sudden one of the biggest companies in the world. Um, which you know, from our model perspective, would say they've got you know massive labor management risks uh, and not managing that risk is, is a problem. But then of course there's the the safety aspect, which is obviously what's been blowing up in the news. Like how do you how do you control the behavior of someone who's not your employee? Um, so they, I think they're trying to have it both ways, trying to avoid the this intensive labor management side while having the upside of you know a very large workforce. Um, and in some sense, they've they've come short on both of those counts. I want to put that three million drivers into scale because it's pretty wild. Walmart, one of the biggest companies in the world by employees, currently has around two and a half million employees. The United States Department of Defense, which is the world's largest employer, has only 2.9 million employees. So Uber has a massive group of people that logs onto its app to make money. And usually for a company like that, we look at how they manage their workforce using talent retention programs and anti-harassment policies and, and all types of talent development. But these companies have none of this stuff because... They would then have to cop to the fact that their drivers are actually employees. It's a catch-22, right? Because if you if you want some kind of loyalty from your employees, you need you need to do something. And as soon as you do something, then you know as a company you're investing in those employees. So when they walk, if they walk away, and you have some sort of you know talent drain, then that you know that investment is essentially wasted on the on the company. It's good for the broader talent pool, but that's that's beyond the conversation. So I think the you know the i think what ends up happening is the companies that are in this low skill contract worker arrangement end up going for the the lowest possible denominator to ensure that they have enough workers but then you know beyond that probably don't do a whole lot more which means it is tough to measure how their workers are feeling or operating or what the morale is and that this can expose the company to to some significant long term risks like worker turnover or disillusionment that then causes more worker turnover or or violence as we noted in the beginning of the story which is done by the company's employees and there's that but there's also the complaint that these companies aren't confirming whether or not the people that are using their apps are not vicious folk so the when you talk about that what the first thing i think of is um is the need for meaningful work that i think um i think a lot of a lot of people underestimate the need for that, um, you know, in the average employee. Um, and there have they've been some very interesting experiments on how how people take to tasks. Um, I think there was a, a, a pretty famous one. I think it was uh, Dan Ariely, who's a behavioral economist, but he was he, he had people come in and, and build, I think, these like Lego robots. And they would get paid for building the robots. But then as soon as they built the robot, then someone would come and break it down into its pieces and put it back into the box. Um, and the people that got paid you know, a lot of money to do that were not as happy as the people that got paid less and then saw their robots put on like, a you know, a pedestal or something like that. So, so to, like the, to come back to your question, I think the, you know, the, the way Uber and Lyft and companies like that are looking to incentivize drivers 
is is largely through cash because it's difficult to make you feel like you're doing a meaningful job and that you're part of a an organization and it's difficult to develop you um, and I think that's you know that's where the disillusion comes so they, they have very few channels I think to get the typical employee engagement you know measures that we would look for and I think they largely have to rely on money which then comes to that same problem again of what how do you have these small you know these narrow margin fares that you want to get market share with and pay your drivers a lot of money and make sure that your company's making money like you can't have all three and I think that's that's essentially the problem with the employee engagement piece for for these companies but like you said for the, the broader gig economy it's a similar kind of challenge um, how do you engage employees that aren't essentially you, you're saying are not part of your business or your company but to be honest I think the the, the real problem with this the the background checks is, a, is about the number of people that are using the app and and the overheads that you'd need to run security checks on all these people and it's quick and easy which is you know the, the draw of Lyft and Uber but it's quick and easy because it's not very thorough and I think that's the problem um, and they've set the model up in such a way that they need it to be quick and easy and they need to have you know razor thin margins so they can get market share and then that puts everything under pressure and this pressure isn't just felt in the ride-sharing community. I think it ripples through our economy in different ways. For ride-sharing companies, they have these large workforces of low-paid, low-skilled labor that may eventually be replaced by automated cars. And that transition is going to be nuts. They can't just replace all their workers with robots overnight. And for higher-paid, higher-skilled workers at tech company like Google, for example, that are using a massive amount of contractors, the New York Times reported they're using more contractors than full-time workers at the moment, you have possible looming regulations like California Law AB5 that might reclassify how contractors contractors are classified. And then there's this kind of murkier connection with social media companies that I want to bring up because they're out there saying, well, we can't control our crazy users. They're just going to post insane political ads and we're not going to uh, check them. We're just going to allow them to disrupt sovereign nations possibly. And we don't want to have to have control over them. There's this connection between uh, companies that don't want to have control over their employees and social media companies that don't want to have control over the people that use that, their uh, platform. And there's this real risk out there that this regulatory arbitrage that now exists for these ride-sharing companies, for example, or the absence of realistic regulation against these companies will soon be removed. And companies that have such a massive labor force, such as Lyft and Uber do, will have to count those workers as employees which would force those companies to become liable for any damages done to or by those employees. And this really matters on both sides of the wheel. Late yesterday, Uber released its first safety report, which found there were 5,827 incidents of sexual violence or harassment committed in the 2.3 billion Uber-completed trips between 2017 and 2018. And I know we've been focusing on crimes by drivers committed against riders, but Uber reported that nearly half of those sexual harassment or violence incidences were committed by its riders against its drivers. And this is a very human concern and a tragedy, but as the gig economy spreads like a weed, it will also, this situation, this complication with precarious work arrangements that force companies or provide companies an ability to not recognize their workers as employees will also link firms that have very different business models but similar labor structures. Andrew and Megan in the report, they have some great examples of companies in different industries with similar risk exposures that are linked not by the products they offer or the materials they get for their supply chain, 
but how they manage their workforce and if they use a large amount of contractors instead of full-time employees. And so regulation is going to have to catch up to this changing reality. And until that happens, until that arbitrage is, is fixed, in the future, it might be up to investors to engage and dig into the societal and business risk posed by these precarious work arrangements. Okay, so for our first hot take, Rick Marshall is here with some spice to put on the decision by Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin to step down from their executive roles at Google's parent company, Alphabet, and Sundar Pichai, Google's chief executive, will become the chief exec at both Google and Alpha. Let me have it, Rick. On the one hand, it's incredibly positive news. It's... Um it's setting an example for all of the other firms out there where visionary founders have become CEOs and managed their companies and taken them to a certain point of growth. And now they can step down and step aside and allow some new energy to come in. So that that's, um, as has, has often been the case with um, Alphabet, previously Google, they've set a, set a standard here. Um, and, and in that sense, it's a, it's a big event and it's a positive event. But there's also a flip side to that. And the flip side to that is that they're still very much in control. They're not changing their ownership in any way. Um, and we now have one individual who previously played a, a very strong, powerful leadership role um, with the Google firm itself, now taking over leadership of the entire enterprise. And so in a way, we have a concentration of power. Um, they've just shifted it up a, a, a notch or two. So, you know, the jury is out as to where it goes, but I certainly would applaud them for uh, the audacity of saying, yes, we step down. You think Zuckerberg sees this and decides, all right, now's a good time to relinquish some of my power. I can kind of go relax on the beach for a little bit? Um, no. <laughs> in, in a word, no. And finally, Umar Ashbak is here to tell us about a Guardian article on a new report which rated the world's 35 biggest insurers and found that coal projects are becoming uninsurable. Umar is here to tell the doubters that this is not just window dressing. So this is definitely more than a symbolic move. If you look at this, uh, if you look at the larger picture, back in July, you also had the European Investment Bank, the lending arm of the EU, saying that it's also going to restrict financing to coal plants, knowing their direct impact on, on the global warming potential of, of, of coal plants. Now, this is important because ultimately all of these, both of these things together drive up the, the cost of capital that it takes to set up new coal plants and also conduct any uh, balancing, modernization or revamping of existing coal plants. So in all, driving up the co cost of capital for coal plants it bodes well for other forms of uh, more sustainable forms of energy. Uh, it says most coal projects cannot be financed, built, or operated without insurance. What does that mean? So for any project to take off, insurance is a norm. Be it's, this is not just something which is restricted to coal plants, but this would be something for any project finance uh, going ahead. And so basically the abandonment of insurers means an abandonment of any kind of project. Let's be clear here. It's not totally abandonment. The insurers have said that they're going to be restricting 
the kind of financing that they provide so in 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 plain words that doesn't mean that it's it's going to go from 1 to 0 so it's it's the le- it's another lever to tighten around the insurance cover available for power plant companies setting up coal plants and that's it for the week i want to thank bentley rick and umar for joining me today on the record and andrew and megan for letting me steal the research and of course thank you so much for listening you're the best and don't forget to rate and review us if you like what you heard or didn't like it because i'm always looking to grow thanks again and talk to you next week MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.